Welcome to the Professional Technical Interviewee. I'm Taylor Dorsett. In my six-year career in technical recruiting, I realized that just about every company does technical interviews differently. Many very good senior engineers do not do well in technical interviews, despite being great developers. The only way to get better at interviewing is to practice. Many early career engineers don't really know what a technical interview is like until they're in their first one. Our goal here is to change that and shed some light on the technical interview. My guest today is Francois Toubault. He's been leading companies in Chicago like SimPartners and Lively for many years. We talk over his interview style and in the second half tackle a coding problem in a number of ways and even used recursion. I hope you enjoy. Is it Lively or Lively? It's Lively, right? Lively. So lively. it's pronounced okay. Lively even though, yeah, it's interesting. We are, we are writing... Um, an Alexa a skill right now. And so, yeah, Alexa, I think it's pronounced lively because that's the way it's written, right? And so yeah. um, we have a bit of an interesting problem to solve there. Oh, like I'm sure that's Writing it a one... certain way, but, that, but having it understood another way. So, yeah. Yeah. Probably someone who's just figuring out how to do Alexa skills as well, also trying to solve what seems like a fairly complicated problem, right? <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know. You know, um, it seems that our our industry of software development, at least, you know, okay, I'm an old, I'm a, I'm an old fart. Let's put it that way, right? <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I started writing code in the uh, mid '80s, and um, yeah, as a kid, you know, you're just playing around and stuff like that. But um, the the industry has evolved a lot. To, to the point where you can do amazing things with very little lift in, in terms of the amount of work that you need to put in. Sure. And then Alexa Skill actually, we spiked that, I think a couple of sprints ago, uh, and Mehdi, uh, one of the engineers on the team, basically was able to crank it up in a couple of days. Oh, wow. Uh, a prototype, right? It's not yeah. completely integrated with the product or anything, but now you can say, hey, Alexa, I've, I've got Google, so at least I can say, Alexa, it's not going to pop up. Um, but hey, Alexa, you know, are there package rating for me? And then you would know, you know, from Lively being, you know, software for for tenants and residents in a multifamily bu um, um, buildings yeah. um, so that they can know, you know, if there's a package for them. That's just an example of, of the skills that we are building. But super low lift, you know, Medi was able to do it in a couple of days, basically. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, um, I... I believe I know Mehdi. I think he was a guy when I was, you know, in recruiting, I, I sent many messages to <laughs> trying to pull him well, somewhere. Yeah, there is probably less Mehdi than there are Francois in the Chicago tech scene, yeah. I guess, at the end of the day. And Mehdi, yeah, is, is just such an amazing and a special, special character and human being in my life. I learned so much from the guy within the last 18 months that we spent together. So, um, yeah, he's the, he's the real deal as far as I'm concerned. Well, let me let me and you're gonna be you. you're gonna be so so are you just let me ask the question yeah. i thought that you make make that kind of shift in your life right mm -hmm. and go to a boot camp like many people do and and um try to go down that path are you going to continue to contemplate some of your work as a recruiter as well or you're just all in in software development now 
Yeah, I've got a couple. I basically right now I have partnerships with recruiting companies where like, you know, I still have a lot of engineers or managers who reach out to me saying, Hey, we're hiring or, you know, I know you're not a recruiter anymore, but do you know anyone who can help me find my next role? And I refer people um, to companies. So I kind of have partnerships. I haven't, um, I've thought about it a little bit. There are a lot of, you know, software companies in the recruiting space where I'm like, I could probably be an asset there. Right. Um, but I, I almost deliberately for this first role tried not to be attached to that because I've been so, you know, the last six years has been recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. I wanted to, you know, sometimes you get too specialized, right. And I wanted to see what it was like outside of that. Right. So my role now is with the healthcare company. And then I also do some consulting on the side. That's like more small businesses, which is, um, I think healthcare was something I recruited a lot for, but never worked in, right? So that's been nice. Um, and then the small business stuff is more similar to a lot of the clients that you know I always had as a recruiter, but now working with them as an engineer. So that's kind of a new side as well. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I don't know. You know, I remember seeing seeing the post on LinkedIn when you really made the switch and just thinking, yeah. "Wow, that's it's um, and it happens more and more." Um, mm-hmm. And you know, historically, you had to go through studying math at the university and then get a CS degree. And that, that was the way to do it at the time. Um, and that resulted because I, I believe we have a strong problem in diversity at a young age as well to STEM in general. I'm talking kids in junior high or, yeah. or high school. And, and there is just a, a reduction in diversity that happened for some reason there. Um, and, and seeing... Yeah, seeing those boot camps and, you know, that's that barrier to entry that is a, a significantly lower than what it used to be for, for that particular aspect of the industry yeah. um, just just enables that to happen. Uh, one of the best engineers we had at Team Partner was uh, an ex-doctor um, uh, um, in biology from Northwestern, and she sure. made the switch to, to programming. Um, spent i think three months in boot camp over there uh and then ended up being like one of one of the stellar engineer at seam and then at reputation um, yeah. she's one of you know top engineers there now so yeah that's another good example and really excited to see that happening yeah you know when i am um, so i worked at actualize which was coding boot camp for a couple of years um as basically the director of outcomes like helping people get their first job and that's what kind of really opened my eyes to um, you know, as a recruiter, I think a lot of times you're often talking to the, you're trying to find the best people, which sometimes might fall a little bit more into that, like engineering minded stereotype or engineering, like stereotype personality. Right. Um, and once I went to the, the boot camp, I realized, Oh, a lot of the people that are coming through the boot camps are just, they're just normal individuals who are, you know, fairly intelligent and smart enough, but what they realized was they weren't really happy with whatever career they kind of gotten on board with and they wanted to make the switch and it wasn't like it was going to be an insurmountable thing right there's people who were just normal folks um who could make that move so that really opened my eyes to just like the diversity of individual who is now in that space and i think in chicago alone there's been a huge boom um since dev boot camp i don't know probably eight maybe 10 years ago at this point the first Mm -hmm. um kind of uh uh shop there that really 
people might say flooded the market now, but definitely opened up the types of individuals that are in Chicago. Yep. And now a lot of those people are managers and even CTOs, right? So it's kind yes. of um, yep. really helped expand things out of that traditional computer science, math science background, right? Yes. And we still have a long way to go, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but sure. that's, that's, very, that's very much wor a force working the right direction from that perspective, for sure. Yeah. Well, and let me you introduce think, um, you. Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, so I guess today is Francois, um, who's a Chicago-based um, CTO and, and uh, longtime engineer here, successfully um, started and then uh, ran several companies in Chicago um, that, that exited, uh, including Sim Partners, which a couple years ago was acquired by uh, Reputation.com, and then most recently has been with Lively for the last couple years. Um, and, you know, if you want to introduce kind of Lively, what the platform looks like, and then your role there and kind of what your team looks like, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Lively is in the property technology space. Um, we are focused on resident and property manager experience. Mm -hmm. um, so you can think about um, a multifamily rental building where everyone in the building rents their unit is basically the market that at least at that point in time we are focused on. Um, and all those people really have their phone to interact with everything as it relates to their building from their, their key to open their door uh, to opening their door, uh, to uh, communicating with their neighbors, with, um, with a micro social network within the building where um, they can exchange, they can sell things, you know, all the things. Um, running events and services is also a big thing. So say, for example, um, I am in the office and I realize I'm not going to be back in time to walk the dog, then I can um, uh, give access to my unit to a dog walker for a specific amount of time um, and then buy that service, have the dog walker come in, take my dog out and, and uh, bring it back in. For example, that's, that's one of the, uh, the value prop. But it's really a platform that enables everything to run within the building. Um, you know, from um, running amenities, for example, is another big, big thing. Activation, mm -hmm. activation of dead space. So there are a lot of dead space in this building that we can repurpose, for example, into package room. We also have package scanning technology. Um, so that that's a big uh, big aspect. So, it uh, interestingly enough, from a from a sales funnel standpoint, it becomes it's it's a challenge to sell this platform offering because there sure. is so much to it that it can get overwhelming from an information standpoint. Um, but yeah, the value prop, you know, to to take it down to the the elevator pitch is uh, providing the best in class resident experience so that residents renew their lease. Yeah. When the lease does not renew, there is a lot of money that is uh, that is lost for those uh, owners and operators. Yeah, I've certainly moved out of buildings that I enjoyed in the past based off of you know everything involved with living in the building, like the amenities and how yes. they were handled. So I'm sure there's uh, lots of yes. folks that are in the same situation. Right. So so yeah, that's what Lively does. Um, I work with. Um, I work with product and technology and CS at that point in time as well. Um, I think to me, you know, that's, that's really, that's a lively t-shirt, by the way, stay resilient. Um, I love it. And I think being resilient and being flexible, we're going to talk about it during the, the interview process are some kind of uh, intangible that, uh, that I'm always on the lookout for. Um, so when you ask the question, what I'm doing at Lively, I'm doing whatever it takes for the company to be successful. And I think that that when, when you work in a startup, we're talking about a company, you know, um, in the case of Lively, around 40, 50 people. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 
you know, at that size group, there is no, you know, it's, it's a can-do attitude that's going to win every day. Um, so sure, of course, I'm on the technical side because that's my upbringing, but um, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes at the end of the day. And um, part of my job is also to clearly articulate that and make sure that everyone is aligned from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And again, as we go into how I personally look at um, interviewing and onboarding people, uh, culture fit is, is the first thing. And it's, sure. um, it's not a negotiable thing. You can be the best developer in the world if you're not going to work within the context of what we do, which is not for everyone. Um, you know, it's not like you, you can articulate your culture. Of course, you want integrity. Of course, you want hard work, of course. But you really have to nail down on what it takes to be successful at your company within that context and then go out for that and figure out whether that person is going to be able to, to do it. Yeah. Now, Resilience and flexibility, as I was saying, is really something that helps you no matter what. That's why it's something that I always look for. Um, but yeah, that's what I do at Lively. I do whatever it takes, you know? That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's great. I mean, hey, it's been a while since I spoke to um, anyone there, but I know in the early days, I think folks maybe came in um, uh, in the mornings and there was like a personal trainer there that they, everyone would do workout classes together. Have you heard of this? That that predates me. And okay. so, <laughs> um, yeah, there is always funny stories like that. But basically, um, Lively started, and that's something that, that really resonated with me at the beginning when I, when I got there. Lively started within one of Alex's building, Alex's uh, co-CEO and one of the yes. founders of the company. Uh, and very much having a vision that's even broader than just Lively because he's a, a, an owner operator, in particular of a brand of building called Flats um, mm-hmm. in, in Chicago. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's a big part of his vision, the software layer for, for his resident experience. And it started within his building. And it's, so, it's such a huge advantage for an early stage startup to be literally within the same environment as their own user and interacting with their user on a daily yeah. basis. They're not going into, you know, high rise in Chicago and trying to, you know, intellectualize what people are doing. They are there. They are living yeah. the same experience. And that's, that's fantastic. If you, if you, if you manage to do that, that's amazing. There is a lot of, you know, the lean startup philosophy that tries to encourage that, happening that is your product team going on site and experimenting with your clients but for lively it was like everyone was there yeah and that's fantastic and, and so in that sense on the service aspect of it that i that i briefly touched on the some of the things that we do uh yeah there is personal training and so i'm not surprised i didn't know that particular story but but i'm not surprised uh that that's the case yeah yeah, I think um, in those those really early years, that's when Lively was a client in the past. So I just have, you know, there's always fun stories mm-hmm. of the early days of startups, right? So um, yes. your role now, are you, I, I'm assuming, you know, the company's grown quite a bit since since you've been there over the last couple of years. Um, are, are you actively interviewing or have you interviewed um, recently at Lively? So um, when I arrived in summer 2019, um, Amazing work has been done from a product discovery standpoint. A lot of experiment, a lot of, you know, what we were just talking about, things that work, things that didn't work, lesson learned, very much lean startup kind of philosophy early on. Yeah. And then at that point, um, 
there is a lot of excitement from uh, from the investor side of things, both within the industry, so uh, companies like uh, JLL, um, and also out of the industry, like our, um, our first seed round lead investor is actually Pritzker Group VC. Oh, sure. Um, and so a lot, a lot of people are very interested. There is a big, um, a big cap raise that happened at that point in time in March 2019, and now it's basically we need to build. You know what we have identified is the market, the market need. We need to build, yeah. and that means two things: you need to build a team, and then you need to have the team build the product, right? from that perspective. I mean, there's different ways to approach that transition from discovery to delivery, but that's one way to approach it, I guess. And that's the way we, we took. And now, you know, fast forward 18 months and we have a solid product offering on, on the market at that point in time. Um, throughout that, so early on, when I arrived, there is a, a big uh, product, um, a big growth product, basically doubling the size of the product and engineering team mm-hmm. within the first 90 days. Right. Um, and that that can be traumatic, right? We can talk about that as well. But uh, those kind of uh, growth are challenging. Sure. I was fortunate not only to have that whole discovery aspect of thing done by um, by the team prior prior to me joining, but also arriving <clears throat> with really an outstanding team in terms of this, the the. Um, seniority level of the engineers across the board. Mm-hmm. So we had a very good base um, to try and grow it. And at the same time, what's challenging is that the expectation for those team players to have someone on the team are very high, which sure. in turn makes the growth <clears throat> that needs to happen that much more, more challenging, you know, when you have high, high um, criteria for selection in the funnel. Um, so, you know, we, we solved uh, a lot of things at that point in time, uh, but that growth happened within, you know, the, the, first, the first quarter I was there, basically, quarter and wow. a half, maybe. Uh, and, th- and then um, throughout Q4 2019, Q1, Q2 2020, um, that was a lot more focused on running the team that we had at that point in time and optimizing our practice so that we can be- become better at what we do. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they quickly came became very, very, very good at what they did. Unfortunately, the next thing you know is <clears throat> COVID hits. Um, and COVID is, a, is very much an opportunity for us, but also, you know, just in the vacuum for B2B sales cycle, which is what we're talking about. The, the application is certainly a B2C application, yeah. but our clients are not the resident. The resident don't buy the app. The, the owner's operator buy the app. Um, and you've they find themselves in with a lot of things to take care of when sure. COVID starts, you know, in this multifamily building. And so um, they are not ready to add a la- another layer of what they can perceive as complexity, even though what we try to do is simplify their life, right? But those B2B sales cycles tend to be challenging. And so there is slower growth than what we projected through, through 2020, mm-hmm. um, like many, many companies have experienced. Um, and we had a bit of attrition as well through the process. So we are a bit smaller now, but a very cohesive uh, and amazing, amazing team, both from a culture standpoint and from a, a raw commitment and skill standpoint as well. Yeah. And so to long, long story short, but to answer your question, at that point in time, we are where we are from a product standpoint. We are well positioned, both from the team and the product itself. 
And what we're trying to do is accelerate our sales cycle and get, get the sales engine off the ground at that point in time. Yeah, that's fantastic. You touched on what I think is um, an interesting point is something a lot of people don't think about is, is companies when they often after someone um, raises funding, right, then you go into this hiring cycle where typically it's let's get X number of engineers on or at least fill up this the, these teams with enough people, right, fairly quickly. But yes. then people really don't think about, well, it's the ramp up time for those individuals as well, right? It might only take you um, 90 days or, or maybe 120 days to get most of the people you want on board, but then you might have another yes. 90 to 120 or even longer before everyone's kind of, you know, clicking and gelling well and able to actually. Depending on the out. size. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think yep. that's an added level of complexity. 100%. I think you start with the why, right? You really have to understand as a, as a, as a technology leader, you don't, the, the answer to why is not because we raised money. Yeah. We really have to have a, a plan and a strategy as to why we are doing what we are doing. Uh, what, what does success look like? What is our contingency plan if we don't get there? Um, and tie that back to the financial of the company, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there needs to be a reasoning, which was very um, articulate and clear with Quartu Lively in terms of, you know, our plan from a product development standpoint at that point in time. Uh, and then to your point, the second aspect of it um, is ideally, you at least want to do both at the same time, but ideally you would want to do the first one at the same time, which is setting up the right environment yeah. before you staff in. So you want to build the seats before you put the players in the seat to some extent, yeah. um, because that way you set people up for success. Mm-hmm. And that way, yeah, something that probably is going to come back in the interview, you're being clear and being clear is being kind. You know, I'm quoting Brené Brown, but it's very important. If it's confusing when someone gets into your company, then it's being unkind to them. It's yeah. um, dangerous because you're not setting them up for success. And last but not least, what they see and their first impression of what is expected of them or how the company is run is going to be their baseline assumption on how things work. Absolutely. And so setting up that environment, which especially in technical team means it's not just, of course, it's a lot of soft uh, aspect in terms of core values and how we work together and soft skill and all the things, but safety and building safety so that you know, teams can work well together. Safety is also something that's very technical. It's can I release my code um, three times a day without being afraid to take production down? You know what I yeah. mean? Or th- I'm exaggerating, but there is a lot of technical things with regard to building your environment that are going to make it very clear that you have your your organization together um, as as a group, um, and that you look at safety not just from a soft skill, skill standpoint, so that people can exchange and debate idea and be okay to be wrong and all the things but also from a technical standpoint. Yeah. So ideally, you want to do that first so that that ramp-up time is shorter and expectations are really clear. If you can't, you have to do them both at the same time, which uh, we did at Lively, and we were successful doing that because there was a baseline of engineers that were very, very senior at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's often underestimated how much work that can be, right? Especially when you're trying to do everything else that goes into running a startup at the same time. It's easy for the new person to get forgotten about or just even if it's a couple hours, you know, early in their their employment there, it can be stressful as a new employee, right? Going, 
am I supposed to be doing something right now? You know, what's the expectation, yes. right? If that's not clearly defined. And I think like you mentioned, it's that first impression is so critical. Um, I, I've heard it said that if someone leaves within the first 90 days of starting, you know, a job, like that's not on them, that's really on the company, right? Because it's, they're probably going to give you at least 90 days. If something's gone wrong at that point, then, you know, mm -hmm. something you need to address internally. Right. Yep. Which is why uh, recruiters put that 90 day period. Yeah. <laughs> to some extent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, any recruiter will try to push it down to 30 days. Right. <laughs> right. And then exactly. any company will want to do a uh, hundred. You know, days, I, right? I don't know, you know, I don't know what your thought on that, but there is certainly a perception, um, in my group of peers, at least, that uh, there is just something wrong about the entire system of recruiting sure. because your incentive as a recruiter is just to place more candidates because you get a commission on every candidate. Yep. Um, and that's not conducive of building good relationship with a company where you staff mm -hmm. those engineers. There is all these non-solicitation stuff as well um, that is on all our contracts, which is not conducive of the the best interest of the community at large in yep. in any tech community in that case chicago tech community um so there are a lot of those variables that kind of play against us as well that we have to be careful when we look at the outside world yeah, yeah. and i i think i always have a, a soft spot for recruiting firms but also knowing that you know a lot of recruiting firms are fairly um i don't say unethical but but maybe they're looking out for the bottom line. Um, but what I always used to say was, yeah. you know, the longer a guarantee gets, right? Like as a recruiting firm, your, your job is to introduce someone who a company wants to hire, but then after that person's hired, you really have no control at that point, right? You know, if it's 120 days later and that person isn't working out, I can't really do anything about that was what I used to tell clients, which yeah, um, it's... It's true, um, but also if they would have introduced five more steps in the interview process to make sure that person was a good fit, I probably would have pushed back on that too. So yes. <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah, I don't think yeah. there's a, a perfect yeah, solution, yeah. right? Yeah. No, there isn't. Um, it's just about understanding each other's objectives and needs and trying to yeah. work together for the better. And and choosing your partner is important. And you know we've worked together quite a bit in the past, so mm -hmm. that uh, you know at least for me that that reflects on on your work as well. Yeah. But yeah, but, always... um, go ahead. Yep, go ahead. I was going to say that uh, how you set up the interview funnel is probably the most important question in order mm -hmm. to make sure that you're going to be successful. And how you optimize that funnel is very important for many different reasons, right? There is many things for which you might want to look at your interview funnel and optimize it. Um, one could be candidate experience and brand which is yeah. very important for high growth company. Uh, one could be that you're maybe you're losing candidate to the, the lens of your funnel and, uh, and they are getting offers from other companies um, too fast. Uh, one can just be, we need to grow faster. One can just be, we need to get better quality uh, candidate through the door. Um, it can also um, be a problem of precision and recall that if thinking about false positive and false negative and how you want to handle one with respect to the other, what is the cost of one with regard to the other. A false positive is is very damaging in that sure. interview process. And so you end up with a lot of those funnels just weeding out candidate that could be a good candidate, but just by um, 
weighing that false positive aspect of it. You just don't want to take the risk sometime. Uh, and last but not least, what I've seen um, most often in as an optimization variable is just we are spending too much engineering resources on hiring. And as a result, we are losing an opportunity cost as it relates to our product development, especially in high growth company with senior engineer where the bar is, bar is very high. Um, and so there are multiple things you can do, but at the end of the day, it's very important to think about what is your context, both what you're trying to achieve um, uh, pragmatically with your interview funnel. And of course, my two cents, but being extremely clear about who you are and what is your culture as a company um, so that you can um, uh, consider that viable first uh, in your interview process. You know, rest in peace, Tony Shea, but to me, that was the very first management book that I've ever, ever read. Uh, Delivering Happiness and the, sto the story of Zappos. Yeah, it was the the company book at Simpartner. If you were an employee, you needed to read that book first thing. Wow. And um, I just read it about a month yeah, ago. Yeah, it's... It, um, it, it's anyone who yeah. I think is building a company. And it's timeless. Yeah. Should read it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of timeless and it was very much ahead of his time. I, I think it was written in 2008 or 2000, 2009, something like yeah. that, maybe before. Um, and yeah, one of the tenants of the book is you hire and fire based on culture first. Mm -hmm. That's how he puts it, you know. Um, and he says you can be the best engineer in the world. If you're not going to match the team, then you know, it's not going to work out kind of deal. I think famously. So those Zappos, two things. Yeah. I, I think they yeah, um, go have gone to the extreme, right? Of uh, what was it? Paying employees uh, $2,000 or $3,000 or whatever it was. If they finished their training, they said, you can take this money and quit. Right. Which I think that's yep. the epitome of it. If, if someone values that yeah. over the potential opportunity and the culture and the, um, the role, then yeah. you know, you're, you're getting off easy, <laughs> right? If it's only, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. It's very, it's very basic. It's like, imagine the cost for you. If that person stays in your company, Yeah. it's a lot more than $2,000. So yeah. it makes total sense when you think about it. Yeah. It was very forward looking, you know, it was talking about those, you know, things that are mainstream now, core values, company culture ahead of his time. And then he switched into something that actually was developed in a, in Chicago, I don't know too, too much about it, but holacracy was something that he was very adamant about and kind of destructuring the structure of hierarchy into a mm -hmm. more responsibility-based environments. So always someone ahead of his time from that perspective, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. you mentioned a number of um, things that impact the, the interview funnel and, and um, I'm curious, what are you typically evaluating for when you're having candidates actually come through the interview process, right? Because that's something that I think, yeah. um, as you mentioned, culture, obviously, that, that's hugely important. Um, but I think you touched on two things that can be a huge hurdle for companies, especially if you're trying to grow quickly, which is one, using those engineering resources, right, who could be building, right, um, to actually yes. do those interviews. I think that's, I always used to think of it as every hour you're interviewing is an hour away from production time, right? Or an hour away from production code. Um, and it's more, it's more because it's an interruption, right? Sure, I'm, I'm right. interrupting you yeah. <laughs> ironically, but the, the cost for an engineer to change, to change his mindset in the middle of the day for an hour is much more than an hour last of software development, in my opinion. 
Yeah, absolutely. You can't just pick up a phone and, you know, do the interview and then hang it up and get back to coding, right? <laughs> there's, there's other stuff involved right. as well, so, right? There so. is context switching. Yeah. Yeah, there is context switching. There is your, and, and also there is your unavailability to work as a team. So that sure. your, your front-end dev, you know, your back-end dev, you're interviewing for a backup candidate and your front-end dev is like, you're missing something in the contract and I cannot move forward. So yeah. they are going to have to contact switch as well and go on to something else and use their time otherwise. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it can get tricky, you know, especially when the scale is larger and you're trying to grow fast or when you're, when you're very adamant about the quality uh, that you want out of the funnel. Yeah. 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 So, so what are you evaluating for, um, apart from culture, obviously that being a, a huge piece? Yeah. So that's, that's definitely, uh, uh, it's, and, um, fortunately culture is, is probably not the, uh, hardest, uh, in my experience, not the other thing to figure out and vet out as long as you have, as long as you Google, you know, behavioral interviews and, and try to understand how that work and, and build, uh, build a plan based on that and just, just execute your plan as an interviewer during the interview. But it's, you know, it's not too, too hard if you have um, good soft skill, which in general, those people who are leading uh, technology team do have, uh, I would like to think. And so that's okay. You know, it's not too, too hard to do. Um, the bulk of the interview is actually going to be whether, whether the candidate qualifies on, on, the, uh, on the other side of it as well. Um, but to answer your question, it depends on the context, right? It depends on the context. Even the culture side of things, how you're going to evaluate it, it depends on the context because the context is the culture in that case. Um, and the way, so if I really take your question literally, what am I thinking about? How do I prepare for an interview? Really depends also where in the funnel am I interviewing? So maybe you can, like, let's take the example of uh, something that I've been through multiple times now. We are trying to optimize the funnel so that we don't need um, to um, involve a lot of engineering resource while we are weeding out the majority of the candidate, because that's the way the funnel works. Uh, sure. Odds are not, odds are playing against you as a candidate. We have to be clear about that, right? Um, so one way to optimize that funnel uh, in my experience, that I've seen working well, um, and you're going to see there is a bit of a controversial part to it, but the very first part is very typical, which is a call with HR, generally 30 to 45 minutes max. Mm -hmm. um, 30 minutes is a good, is a good timeline for that. Uh, and it's just high-level behavior phone interview just to make sure that uh, there is a cultural fit there from their perspective. The second step in that funnel would be something that is um, have a, uh, a deeper culture fit assessment. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully that takes uh, from 10 to 15 minutes and then a 30 minutes um, algorithm technical coding interview. Um, and I, you know, it has worked out for me. What can I say? Um, I know that it's kind of controversial and some of the question, and when we go into the second part, maybe you're going to see a bit of that. Um, it becomes very theoretical, you know, it has to do about, sure. uh, it talks, you know, we're going through algorithm optimization, a lot of things that if you're interviewing for a fan company, you have to study by the book a lot before you get there, for example. Yeah. Um, and maybe the bar, bar is not as high when you're, when you're getting into a startup. But for me, that's something that 
presents the advantage of um, uh, being low lift in terms of the cost to figure it out. So we can spend 30 minutes and I'm going to um, have a, a decent idea of, you know, what are your skills on that, on that particular very, very narrow, you know, it's very narrow area that you don't often use at work. I completely recognize it, right? But uh, I think it's linked to other skills as well um, sure. that, that eventually turn out well. Um, it's also, of course, a very good soft skill evaluation experience while we are going through the exercise because it helps me understand better um, how you think about solving a problem, which is like the meta aspect of it, which is extremely important. And also you communicate about it. Are you afraid to make mistake? Are you afraid to ask questions? Are you asking too many questions? Uh, do you find that right balance between autonomy and and um, asking for help? You know, all the things come through that exercise very easily. Um, and by doing it that way, uh, I find that we can, a, a good benchmark for us is 15% of the candidate are going to make it through these first two filters. Mm -hmm. And then you're working onto the rest of the funnel, which is much more involving on your engineering side, but you're working with a subset of candidates that you believe are going to be largely successful because you, you're always in a much lower percentage of your top of funnel, basically. Sure. That's all. But that's solving for one problem, right? If you're trying to solve for other problems that we mentioned before, then the strategy would be different, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I think... Um when interviewing can get frustrating on both sides is when um, maybe a company doesn't know exactly what they're trying to solve for, right? They're, maybe they just, they know they need to hire engineers, but they don't need have specific problems they need to solve for, or they just, they don't really have specific roles they're hiring for. And sometimes they're trying to figure that out in the interview process, right? Which I think is expensive um, for companies to do and also mm -hmm. um, costly from a time perspective for, for candidates, right? So uh, I, I think having a clear idea of this is what we need from this and almost um, a rubric or something yes. like that that you're you're evaluating with i think can be hugely helpful right yes. on both sides and, and makes yeah. the process much better because like you said you only um, want that 15 percent um or whatever that percentage may be that's actually going to go to a final or, or late stages of an interview in theory that's someone you've already kind of pre-selected as this person could be a good fit right they just need to pass these last couple bars um and then we'll figure out if we're actually going to make them an offer right yeah and those bars are more costly from an engineering team involvement standpoint um, yeah. if you want to, to do it well. But, but uh, there are less candidates and therefore the overall, um, the overall lift is, is, is kind of lower. Going back to what you were saying, being clear about your why before you hire is extremely important yeah. because if you're not, you're doing a disservice to yourself and you, you're doing a disservice to the other person and you, everyone is starting of the wrong feet, right? Um, so, so clarifying why you're hiring. So I'm a big fan of scorecards, um, mm -hmm. and, and using them through the interview process to, you know, uh, pragmatically evaluate what you have on the table for one candidate versus another, um, I think is, is legit, you know, never, it's, it's impossible to reduce people to numbers, but you do your best to, to try and have evaluation criteria. Yeah, so I was going to ask if you have a standardized there. system because I think that's that's important. But like you mentioned, it's some type of scorecard. Yes. That, that's how you're, um, that's what you're using through the interview process? 
Yes, that's one of the tools, right? I, I like to think, as a matter of fact, just like a developer, right? I like to think there is a problem. Here is my toolbox. Mm -hmm. what, it, what makes sense in that particular context, right? And, and really taking a step back and not applying your recipe all the time. You know what I mean? Um, it's very much the same thing in engineering, right? It's not like, oh, um, I know JavaScript, therefore everything needs to be written in JavaScript. You know what I mean? Or I'm, I'm, I'm caricaturizing, but... Um, the point being, and, and you rely, personally, I rely a lot on the HR team as well uh, at that point in time to try and figure out, because it's their responsibility and I want to be conscious of that as well, uh, to work together and make sure it works. But being clear about who you are as a company is very important. Being clear about who you are as a candidate is very important. And that's really the base of those first interaction. Um, and and um, yeah, Beyond that, being clear about what the process is like is, is important too. So it's setting up your funnel, understanding the different step, understanding your evaluation criteria, whether you use a scorecard or something else. Um, I, I'm a big fan of uh, um, not disclosing thoughts, which is easier said than done throughout sure. the interview process so that everybody uh, gather and and we all go thumbs up or thumbs down at, at the same time. Um, it's kind of... It, it's it's terrible to say that because you're, you're really talking about people, right? But that's what it is at the end of the day. Do I want to work with that person? Do I think they are going to be successful or not? Mm -hmm. And not interacting or talking to one another um, and not influencing one another until we can, we come to that point. And that always sparked very interesting discussion when, when there are some disagreement. Um, but generally, most, most of the team is aligned on the yeah. yes or no. Yeah, it was interesting when I was, um, whenever I was hiring uh, as a recruiter, I used to try to, I, you know, I would go meet with the individual and then I would come out and um, someone would ask, you know, uh, how are they or how they do? And I'd say, well, why don't you go in and ask about X, Y, and Z, right? Trying to get some more information about something. But if you share too much, like you said, it does color that interview, right? The next interaction mm -hmm. where they might go, oh, I don't, yep. this person isn't going to work out. Maybe I only spend 15 minutes with them instead of 30, right? Um, which I think can can really yep. make the interview process difficult as a candidate. Yeah, that's another interesting one. Um, if you feel strongly about something, um, then again, it's being clear, it's being kind. Um, mm -hmm. Giving proper feedback at the end of the interview for the candidate is so, so valuable for the candidate, especially if they didn't make it through so that they really understand why. And it's not... It's not like whatever, you know, I'm going to say X, Y, Z, we are looking for someone like that or whatever. Sure. It's really providing actionable feedback at the end of the interview is so, so valuable for them. Um, and at the same time, that's the best service you can do to your company because the experience that the candidate has throughout the interview process, if they don't, if they don't make it through, is you're going to have someone out there. Um, I've, I've got quite a few stories where, uh, I, we got second-hand candidates that actually made it through from candidates that did not make it through. Sure. Um, and it's just thinking about caring for people, building your brand, uh, caring for your company, and then making the right thing. But that, but that feedback at the end is so, so crucially important. Yeah. How do you approach that? Because like you said, I mean, that, that's 
it can be a great source of candidates. If you have someone who interviews and doesn't do well, but they enjoyed the process, you know, they're going to tell people yeah. about that. And likewise, if they hated the process um, and didn't get an offer or even did get an offer and end up turning it down or don't work there, they're going to tell people about that as well. Yeah. Right. So how do you deliver that yeah. feedback though, where you're one, you know, protecting yourself from liability of, you know, maybe anti-discrimination, yeah. something, yeah. right. But to also, well, um, yeah. <laughs> hoping yeah. that, um, you know, people aren't going to be too upset with you if you said you failed your coding interview or get into an argumentative mindset, right? Because yeah. I think that's the hesitation for a lot of companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you always have a choice in life, right? Do you want to expose yourself and do you want to be authentic and truthful? Or do you want to protect yourself and put your armor on? Um, and you know, I think it goes way beyond the, the particular topic that we're talking about there. But I think in the vast majority of cases, people are struggling between that fight and flight mechanism, which is I'm either going to say something and make an enemy or I'm going to shut up and everything is going to be okay, but I'm not going to get my point through. And again, you know, that goes way beyond just that particular situation, but it applies there, right? So there is always, that's what's called a full choice. There is always a way to say what you have to say in a way that's kind, in a way that's respectful, mm -hmm. in a way that's going to create value for the other person, even though it's not easy to say. Sure. And you can always try your best. You might not find it. You might, you might screw it. And actually, um, you know, the person is going to come back and sue your company. I don't know. But there is always a way. The question is, are you going to be able to find it or not? Um, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of uh, politicking around your question, but that's really it, right? Are you ready to be vulnerable? Are you, you know, and, and are, you ready to are you ready to spend the time actually writing down some actual feedback that's valuable for the person, you know, all, all the time? Yeah, um, I think is that's- to be taken into consideration. Yeah. I think having well, yeah, one, have, the empathy, but two, the, the time and actually yeah. making a conscious decision of, yeah. you know, this is, yeah. I'm going to care enough about this individual instead of just writing yeah. the, Hey, you know, we're, we're moving yeah. forward to the candidate's email and then it's done actually trying to be helpful. Right. Um, but like you said, that creates a better experience for people. Um, even if it's things a little bit at first, they may go, okay, well, I can go work on that thing. And six months later or a year later, they might yeah. be a great fit for a different role. Right. So I think yeah. that's important in building. Those yeah. It's, um, I have a small, small story there. At some point I interviewed for a, for a VP of engineering position at Root Insurance when they were, when they were really growing a um, sure. couple of three, two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed with that Magnus, you know, the, the CTO of there, who used to be the CTO at Braintree as well. Yes. Um, I talked to the guy for literally an hour um, and I was, you know, I was inspired, you know, a lot of the things that I did afterwards came just from that conversation. And just because I sent an email at the end as well, and I say, hey, do you have feedback for me? And, you know, I did, I did quite a few things that uh, he had me reflect on as well, mm -hmm. but he was very kind. He pointed out what I, where I was a good fit and where I wasn't and why and what were action items for next time when I'm in contact with this situation so I can be, um, more thoughtful about my answers. Yeah. And him taking the time, you know, is at that point, Groot is already a su big, successful, I don't know, probably 500 people company. Yeah. He's a co-founder, he's a CTO, he's, I mean, he has many other things to do. He takes the time to write a three-paragraph email that probably took him at least 30 minutes to write. Mm 
And to me, that's just like, wow, that's someone that I would want to work with. That's a company that is caring for what they are doing and how they are perceived, um, that value their people. Um, and so, yeah, that stuck with me. You know, it's those little things. Um, and then I think, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an advocate for his work and his company, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, so. it, I, I thought about that a lot when I was in recruiting where there were, there were always companies that were not clients of mine, but if someone came through that I knew would be a good fit for, I'd send them that direction and go, Hey, I, you know, I don't, don't need to get paid for this at all. Like, but this person, I know them well, and I know your company well for X, Y, and Z reason. And I think you two should connect. Right. And like, there were plenty of places that, um, it was purely because I knew it would be good for both of those individuals. Uh, and, and I think it's because of good interactions with people at that company, which is why I would do those things. Right. Where even, um, through third parties, you can make that type of like true, I don't know, networks, um, that will work for you. And, and a lot of times it comes from just being a yes. good person, right? You're not necessarily doing it for the, what's the financial or the business benefit at the end of the day. It's just trying to be a helpful, good person, uh, which goes a long way. Yeah. The, um... The most valuable currency is the impact you have on another, because once you're gone, all that will be left of you is the impact you had on others. And so that's Jim Carrey says that to me, it resonates a lot, you know, and I try to abide by it. Yeah. So anyway, we went really deep into the, <laughs> the soft skill side of things, but there are some soft skills that are intangible. Uh, we talked about one of them being, uh, uh, being resilient, uh, flexibility, um, could, uh, in, because in terms of culture fit, that's going to enable you to navigate different environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I always go back to something uh, from Bill Campbell, who used to be a very you know renowned um, coach in Silicon Valley. Has uh, a fantastic coach, book uh, as uh, well. Schmidt, coach Steve Jobs. Hmm? What was that? He has a fantastic book as well. Um, I can't yes. remember if it's Trillion Measure What Matters. Coach. Uh, yeah, the trillion dollar what matters what is matters John is... Dower. So, so, yes. so Bill Campbell coached John Dower, who wrote right. a, a book on OKRs called Measure What Matters. The Both Bill of Campbell them good book. Books. It was such a yes, and uh, I think it's actually John Dower who who wrote um, Trillion Dollar Coach, because Bill Campbell, being a very humble person that not many people know who probably has more influence than anyone else on, on the Silicon Valley because he was a coach to Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt and other, and other great ones. Um, it, th- there is something I always go back when I walk into an interview room, no matter where it is in the funnel, no matter what role it is, no matter who it is, I write down um, some kind of a variation on his framework that he called uh, smarts and hearts. That's how he puts it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has, he has a few criterias in there and I always write them down before getting in the, in the room. Um, are you coachable? Do you have potential? The way he puts it is, do you have the ability to learn fast? Um, do you have a team first attitude and an empathic, an empathic approach to communication? That's the second thing. The third thing is you have the willingness to work hard and the passion. Um, then, um, he talks about grit and the way I put it is more on the resilient flexibility side of things. You know, it's literally in the t-shirt, uh, but yeah, that's a uh, willingness to work hard, um, ability to, uh, to learn fast, um, team first attitude, empathy, grit. 
That's yeah. what he called those five things. That's what he called hearts and smart. And I think, you know, I, I'll take it. I won't even think about it. I'll take it from the, from the great guru to some extent. And as I go through the interview, I, I look at this word and I, in the interaction that we have together, I'm going to try yeah. and pick on certain clues uh, that points in those directions, if that yeah. makes sense. That's, Another that's... way to think about it is passion and potential of a raw skill is a good way to think about it and put emphasis on the soft skill there. Yeah. Yeah. So from the technical perspective, I'm assuming at this point um, in your career, you, you know, when, when you're looking for new opportunities, you're not doing a ton of whiteboarding questions, right? It may be high level technical evaluations, but less um, go solve this algorithm for me. But in the past, how did you feel like you did in those types of interviews? Um, did you enjoy those types of interviews, hate them? Like, what did that look like for you? Um, so my my story is just i i i i interviewed for my first job um and there was a bit of uh, algorithmic question and whiteboarding that was back in 99 uh, and then the next thing you know two years later we're starting our own our own company and so it's not like i interviewed for him we started sure. our own company and it's 10 years of actually interviewing people and getting the right the right um, player on the team um, then moved to the U.S. and st again started up the uh, the engineering team at Sim Partners, and so same thing, you know, always on on the other side of it. And when I come to Sim Partner, there is already a ten years relationship with John Chepke, the, the founders and CEO. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I didn't interview. It's just like, okay, you come and we we do that, we make that happen together, kind of deal. Um, then. Um, reputation is an acquisition. So it's not, again, it's not like I interviewed, we stay on board and um, we worked on the, the product integration at that point in time. And then, yeah, Lively was more of an executive level interview. Um, and there, yeah, there were, there were a bit of um, technical questions, but as you said, maybe more on the system design side of things. Mm. The same thing when you interview at a fan company for one of those more senior management role, um, even a senior engineering manager, it's going to be a lot more, you're going to have some algorithmic question, but it's going to be a lot more about system design and, and, and those kind of things. Um, whether I like it, so I didn't get to do it a lot on the other side, you know? Um, I love it though. So I have, I, have, I have a repo of just programming puzzles th that I work on. I just, sure. oh, that's an interesting puzzle. Let's see if I can make it happen, you know? Um, and even beyond just algorithmics and programming question, I just love puzzles in general. Um, so enigmas, you know, how do you get out of that situation? I, I just, I, I don't know. I just genuinely enjoy them. So I do them for pleasure. That's, that's very nerdy of me, but I'm, I'm a big, huge nerd. So no problem. Oh, I love it. So it sounds like, you know, um, unfortunately having, well, I guess the, the ultimate advice is if you don't, uh, want to go through technical interviews, start companies and get acquired, right? <laughs> that's an easy way to, um, to bypass those. Yeah. Maybe not the easy way. It's probably a lot more work in the long run, but, um, I think I, 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 my recommendation at the high level was to, would just be enjoy, enjoy it. It's, yeah. it can be stressful. Of course, I'm not denying that because you are trying to get the job, but, um, when you get, when you get in the room, be yourself. Yeah. Be clear about who you are. Just like we talked about the company being clear about who they are, you need to be very clear. You need to understand who you are and how you're going to convey it and articulate it because the fit is important as much for you 
as it is for them. Um, and then stay curious, ask questions and clarify things. Um, and th in that stay curious, you know, all those programmatic interviews, just take it as a fun challenge. You know, you might do well, you might not do well. Some people are better suited to do well in those interviews and that's unfair to other people who would be really good at the job who aren't. The best you can do, that's what there is on the table. So the best you can do is stay curious uh, and enjoy the process. Because if you do so, then on the soft skill side of things, you're going to come across a much stronger candidate from that sure. perspective also. So it's that don't stress out, which makes you stress even more yeah, in, yeah. Some, in some ways. But if you can find that space in your head where you stay curious, um, you ask for help when you need to. Um, and maybe the most important thing for you to feel comfortable is it's completely okay to not have all the answers. Yeah. And actually a person on the other side of the table is more about trying to understand how you think about the problem mm -hmm. rather than you having an outcome that is positive or negative uh, on the part on that particular question. Yeah. So That's it's okay I've... to fail. If you can, yeah, go ahead. So see, something I learned in recruiting was I, I can't tell you how many times um, a company said, well, they didn't actually solve the problem. Right. But I, I could tell they understood the problem. They broke the problem down. They destructured yes. it. They were able to attack it in different ways. They asked for help. Like I saw their thought process. And even though they may not have been able to look at it and go, oh, here's a solution. I realized that they are someone who can learn and someone who I could have easily coached through that problem. Right. So we're going to move them to the next stage. Yeah. And those are engineers yeah. that, you know, very often um, they were just people that had a growth mindset, but just weren't quite there yet. Right. Where I think something yes. that someone told me very early in my, um, you know, studies is, is be, uh, becoming a software developer was you're never going to be where you're not. Right. Which is hugely helpful for me. Cause I was going to these interviews frustrated, you know, pretty probably too early to go into technical interviews and, mm -hmm. um, just get stuck on things and then be frustrated. And then that kind of helped me, um, really realize like I'm never going to be where I'm not. So I shouldn't be frustrated about that. And instead I should just think of this as a learning experience and try to enjoy interacting with this individual through the, you know, whatever the technical may be. Gross mindset, Taylor, you will be there. And it's yeah. something that you can learn like anything else. Um, yeah. There is a book, you know, the, 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 the Bible of that kind of stuff is called Cracking the Coding Interview. It's a book that's recommended, you know, for, for that kind of stuff. Study the book, learn about it. It's yeah. going to make you a better software developer. You know what I mean? It's yeah. very narrow. Again, it solves a very narrow problem that you don't often encounter in your day-to-day -day, um, job, but you got to play the game of the job interview, like, yeah. like any job interview, as a matter of fact, not just software developer, you know? Yeah. I do think it's a frustrating thing for people, but it is a, it's a, um, it's a solvable problem, right? It's a known quantity. You know, you're very likely going to have to do technicals. So therefore you should get good at doing those, right? Which is kind of the whole idea of this podcast is obviously there's a lot of things involved in that process of the interview process that, um, that maybe people don't have insight into, but that's one piece that you know is going to be there, right? You're going to be asked to solve a problem yeah. at some point, get good at solving different types of problems in different types of ways. Right. So, uh, and you it's fun, some you know, your... keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Have fun with it. Have fun with it. It's going to make everything better. Yeah. Um, those are some of your, your tips for, for folks interviewing. Uh, do you have any, 
would you have different tips or separate tips for people who may be early career who, you know, they're, they're just kind of, this might be their first technical interviews or they're, you know, they've been in a job for six months to a couple of years, but they're looking for like their second job and maybe looking for something a little bit more difficult than their first um, type of interviews where do you have any different advice for, for folks in that situation? Um, again, it's about being clear about who you are, where you stand, showing that you're self-aware of where you stand and where you want to go. Um, it's good to, to show some, um, um, some, some willingness to grow, right? It's, again, it's the growth mindset is I'm here right now, but I really want to get there and show that, that you have that grit and that passion to get there. Um, a very simple trick is you're always going to have a first round with HR. And so prepare your questions for them. And one of them should be, what should I expect for the coding interview? Or why should I expect further down in the funnel? How can I better prepare for those kind of things? Uh, especially in startup environment, uh, um, the HR team or the recruiter are not going to be proactive about telling you that. So you have to ask. And the information that you're going to get there is already going to be a leg up with regard to other candidate that might not ask for that question uh, and are going to help you feel more prepared um, and, and, and in better shape. But again, you know, the, the other advice, and that's for anyone, is don't be afraid to fail. That's yeah. okay. Um, we live in a country, and that's so, so nice about it, where when you fail, the important thing is that you learn something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you can demonstrate that gross mindset at work, as you were saying, then it's going to be okay. Yeah. I think it's the great quote, the uh, Wayne Gretzky or Michael Scott, depending on who you ask is you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right. And people who, if you're not asking these questions or you're not doing these types of interviews, um, because you're worried that maybe you won't be successful, well, you're not going to get there. But the person who is putting themselves yeah. in that spot and maybe being vulnerable and being okay with failing will eventually yeah. get there if they continue to try, or, you know, there'll likely be some other good um, outcome along the way as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. That resonates a lot. I've got, I've got a lot of, uh, you know, it's that, it's that problem of um, recall versus precision of the interview funnel. Mm -hmm. And I've got, you know, especially when you get into more senior position, the company is going to, you're going to fail a lot of interview for very few where you're going to do well. And it's a lot of rejection and that's okay. You have to be okay with that. And to your point, the only way that you get better at it is to do it more which is why you're doing that podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. In a way, absolutely. you'll get that out of it to some extent, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I have told people that obviously I really in, enjoy these conversations. I think it's very helpful for people to get insight into how managers think. But also there's a selfish side to this, right? Where I want to do more interviews. And you know, I love my job now, but if I can do interviews in a setting where um, I'm learning something yeah. regularly, that's obviously going to help me progress as well, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, before we move into that section, I mean, any interviewing horror stories, you know, personally that you're willing to share of things that just went sideways uh, that, that may be um, helpful for people to relate to? I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a specific example. Uh, I think there is a pattern where 
you get into that coding interview and you put a problem on the table that you expect is at the, the level of the candidate that's interviewing mm-hmm. and it's completely blank. You know, there is no, there is no start. Sure. Um, yeah, I remember. So I, I work quite a bit with uh, offshore resources as well, but it's the same thing, right? You want to make sure that you get, it's, a, it's, a, it's different in the sense that you have to be even more careful on the communication side of things, right? Because mm-hmm. um, not being on the same time zone or not being in the same physical location or having language barrier or having cultural barrier can prove to be extremely challenging. And so you want to be um, even more um, aware in those, in those settings. And, you know, we're talking about the fact that failing is, is, the, is the first step in, in, in a growth process, right? Mm-hmm. And that's very well understood in, in, I think, in the empirical nature of building things in the United States or, or maybe in England as well to, to some extent. France is very different. Um, other European countries are very different, are more or less of the rational school. Like I need to have everything conceptualized in my head and then I'm going to build it. In, um, in France, you do the theory in class and then you do the lab about the theory that you learn. In the US, it's the other, in, or in Chile for that matter as well, it's the other way around. I was always surprised that my kid would go and do things in the lab and then explain them in class. It just didn't fit my mindset at the time, right? So when you interview with, um, with offshore resources, I have a few stories where there's a complete mismatch there. And then they become extremely stressed out on the phone I can remember uh, Michael one in par- in particular um, uh, in Ukraine that that we interviewed and um, it's it's a funny story. Eventually, it turns out to be something good, and we ended up working together. But I remember a complete our story in that interview where the problem is on the table. It's relatively not too complex. Maybe that's the problem that that we do together. Um, it's not too too hard, um, but it blanks out. And in his head, you can see it in his eyes. It's like, this is a disaster. Um, and everything begins to snowball because in his head, you cannot fail a job interview. If you don't have the answer, that's very bad. Um, and so I guess your role as a manager at that point in time is to try and, and smooth out things and try to get them more comfortable to mm-hmm. feel safe so that they can they can move forward. Um, but... I'm thinking of that particular example, but there, there are actually plenty different level of degrees of that happening, right? Sure. Um, if you blank out, ask questions, be yeah. curious, stay curious. That's the, that's the number one thing. Stay curious. Why are you asking that question? Why, what are you trying to get out of it? Even if it gets to that, right? If you really have no idea about what they are talking about, um, can you help me better understand? Can you help me? Yeah. That's very, very powerful sentence. Can you help me? Um, yeah. I'd like to think that we're all very compassionate. If we think a bit more about it, there's nothing more fulfilling than helping another human being that we can do in life. And we're taught in society with rewards and pun- punishment about another way to think about things, but really deeply in us, can you help me is a very, very powerful question. Or what can I do to help you is another very powerful question. So leverage the scan of tools, right? Yeah. Um, it's okay. 
it's okay even to go blank so that you feel more comfortable with it, I guess. But that's yeah. one, one story that I can remember. I guess that there are other funny ones, but uh, yeah. I think in my, my first true technical interview, um, I the same thing. I, I think a lot of people get just stressed and then you panic and it's just an empty screen, right? And the, the clicking, <laughs> the, the flashing blinker and you go, I have to write mm -hmm. something now. And I think I forgot, I, I couldn't write a basic JavaScript function um, and I forgot, you know, how to do like equates. And I ended up passing the interview, but it was definitely the first five minutes were pretty rough. Um, and I got mm -hmm. along really well with the guy and moved on with the, the stages. But I just remember like, I thought I have no idea and I can't even write anything. Right. And I think a lot of people are in that situation, mm. especially if they haven't done a lot of interviews or just, um, you know, are, are, are doing them for the first time in a while, even senior engineers sometimes, right. For, if you're interviewing for the first time in several years, you go, Oh no. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So a couple of things there. The first, first thing is, your previous life has taught you how to develop strong soft skills, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like <laughs> you're going to do very well there. Not everyone is there, but that's what you want to leverage in the situation. The second thing, if you're blanking white like that, the first thing you do, that's very actionable item, write your test. Yeah. Oh. If you start a coding interview by writing your test, you're telling something to the interviewer right away as it relates to how you think, um, it's okay. You don't have to necessarily, unless you think that that's the way the company operates and it's all about TDD and you need to work that way, then by all means, go their way. Um, it's not necessarily um, a route you want to take, but it's definitely when you are, when you are having trouble answering the question, when you don't see the function already in your head and you're ready to split it out, then the best way to do it is to say, when I'm, because the message you're sending is when I'm not sure, I write the test first, because that helps me think about how to write the function that is going to, the, the function that is going to get consumed by the test, right? Yeah. Um, that it's um, very um, proficient um, problem solver type engineers. They're able to run a compiler in their head and they're able to write code in their head and just spit it out. Uh, and that's a great quality to have, um, but you're always going to hit your wall at some point with some degree of complexity. For, for anyone else, that's why TDD is a very good practice. For anyone else, um, TDD just, just teaches you, just, it's, a frame, it's a design framework more so than testing philosophy, in my, my opinion. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of puts you in a framework where you have to think about what you're doing before you do it. Yeah. And so um, that's, if you blank out like that, like you described, write the test. And by writing the test, you're going to show that at least you understood the problem that was on the table. Yeah, that that's great sense? advice. Uh, absolutely. And if you're not, if you don't do test-driven development, and there's a lot of companies, or, or even if you're not testing very much at all, my company right now, we don't do a ton of testing, right? Other than manual, making sure something actually works on a screen, right? Um, I think literally just writing something, right? Or just writing out, the basics of the function of what you're going to call, right. And putting in your brackets and um, that type of stuff at least gets your brain working. Right. And then once you get that first, mm -hmm. the, the pavement down, then maybe you can start adding the lines. Right. So um, I think that's helpful. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcasting app at the professional technical interviewee. I want to thank my guests, 
and my wonderful editor and producer, Dustin Bays. If you're interested in sharing your technical interview advice and being on the show, please reach out at dorsettaylordev at gmail.com. As a reminder, this interview has two parts. You can find the second half, which is the live technical interview, on YouTube at The Professional Technical Interviewee. The link will be in the show notes. Until next time, keep practicing.